Thank you, David. Well, we've already read from Matthew this evening about the triumphal entry where, the, um, where Jesus was riding into the city of Jerusalem on a colt. People put down branches and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And I can't put myself in that perspective. I don't know what that's like to have this adoration coming from all of these sides. And it's got to be like a, a mountaintop experience, you know. I mean, like the masses are coming around you and they're, they're praising you and they're saying true things about you. And we don't know what Jesus was thinking. We don't have it recorded. He didn't say, hey, this is what I was feeling, journal night, Palm Weekend. But what we do know is that just a few nights later, we get a different picture of our Savior. He is no longer in the middle of the masses. He is now surrounded by his disciples, only they're asleep. It's no longer the middle of the day, it's the middle of the night. And he's no longer riding on a donkey. He is sweating on his knees in prayer before his Father. You see, Jesus understood, even when he was riding into the city of Jerusalem, what lie before him. And here he was on the night that he was going to be betrayed, praying to the Father with beads of sweat that were like beads of blood that fell to the ground due to the stress that he was feeling. And he said, Father, all things are possible with you. If it is possible, take this cup from me. You see, in that moment, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew the suffering and the humiliation and everything that he was going to experience. And he wished that there was maybe another way. But then he uttered a very important phrase. But not my will, but your will be done. You see, we can all find ourselves in that place where Jesus was, where we're about to go through suffering, we're about to go through a time of weakness, we're going to have a time where we don't think things are the way it's supposed to be, and no, we're not looking ahead to something that he was looking ahead to, but in our own lives, we have times of suffering and times of weakness, and can we get to the place where we can respond, not my will, but your will be done? It's not an easy place to get to. But I believe the Apostle Paul has a way for us to do that in the book of 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn there as we continue our Purpose in Christ series. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through chapter 12, verse 10. I believe the Apostle Paul is going to give us a way to look at suffering, a way to look at weakness. It's a very tangible things that we can do in our lives so we can look at God and say, not our will, but your will be done. So 11.16 comes on the heels of, of the previous ch- chapter and a half of Paul saying, you're not listening to what reality is. I was an apostle. I had authority from God to come to you. We were the first to come at you with the gospel. And we preached the gospel and you accepted the gospel. But now other people have come in and they're giving you a false gospel. They're giving you things that are not true. And they're boasting about their work. And you're believing them and you are turning away from the things you've been called to. And so last week we talked about how he came out of the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And he was trying to approach them. And still using that vein, he goes to a little bit of a different technique here in verse 16. He says, I repeat, 
Let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, that I too may boast a little. Paul knows that he's not a foolish. He knows that he has authority from God. But he understands that the people who are listening to him, maybe are not agreeing with him. And so Paul is saying, you know what? If, if, I'm not a fool. But if you want to think of me as a fool, at least accept me as a fool so that you can listen to me talk. And then he says in verse 17, What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Well, that's kind of an odd sentence. I'm not not saying this with the Lord's authority, so what, 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 what am I saying? What Paul is saying is this. I have come at you with the authority of Christ. I have come at you with the truth of the gospel and you are listening to the truth of the gospel and you are stepping aside from that. And what you are listening to are these people, these super apostles who have come in your midst, have pointed fingers at themselves, have talked about how great they are, how good they look, and you're listening to their boasting. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk like they do. If you're not going to listen to me the way that I have been speaking, I'm going to sound like the people you like. You can imagine that parent that has teenagers that's deciding they're going to try to talk like a teenager to try to relate to their kid. Well, this is what Paul is attempting to do. And he says here in verse 18, Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. That apparently is the language you listen to. And then he has a little sarcasm. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. You like the people who treat you poorly. They are enslaving you with a false gospel, but because of their boasting, you're listening to them. And so now I'm going to give it a try. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, (laughs) I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Can you imagine Paul writing this? I am boasting. What am I doing? Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And we, we come to understand that these are Judaizers. These people who are accusing him are people who want Christ but also want the law. They want Jesus plus. And they are giving them a false gospel. They're trying to give the false gospel to the people of Corinth. Paul deals with this in his letter to the Galatians. This is not true. They say, but we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, we're children of Israel or children of Abraham. So am I. He continues. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. You see, Paul is boasting. But he's boasting about things that, you know, don't really sound like things I'd want to boast about. He says in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Apparently what they believed was this. If they beat you 40 times, they would kill you. So they were going to show extreme grace to you and do it 39. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Paul says he was not dynamic in speech and he was not dashing to look at. I wonder why. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And see, we look at this in light of what we know, and we can look at the Apostle Paul, man, that is incredible. Look at what he suffered for the kingdom of God, and we can... We can hold him in esteem because of that. But these are things that the people of Corinth would be looking down at him because of. You see, they wanted people to have more success and to look better and to do these things. And Paul's saying, this is what I'm going to boast in. And what we've just read is an entire list of physical ailments that are horrendous. But then we get to verse 28. He says, and apart from other things, there's daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, Paul planted churches in Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica and all these places. And he kept in correspondence with them. That's how we have letters. And he would send, he would send ministers to them to go into, and to do work and to come back and give them a report. When he got reports that weren't good, he would, he would stress about it and wonder, do I need to write to them? What do I need to say to them? Do I need to go visit them? What do I need to go do? How can I make sure that the gospel is going to continue to go out from these people? So he had mental and emotional and spiritual wrestling that he was doing on behalf of these churches. He says, who is weak in verse 29? <laughs> and I am not weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? I get angry when these people around me are led by false gospels. It eats at me. It grinds at me. But then in verse 30, he kind of lets us know what he's doing. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He is turning everything that the Corinthians would look for in a celebrity and a, and a pastor and, and, and the people that they would elevate and he's turning it upside down. He's not boasting in how good he is. He's not boasting on the great things he's done. He's boasting in his weakness. But he hasn't told us why yet. He concludes this little section in 31 through 33. He says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. All this stuff that we've talked about, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not embellishing. This is true, this is my life. In fact, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. You see, this is right after Paul was converted. When he was with Ananias and when God had told Ananias, he must learn how much he has to suffer for my name. Here you have the most well-known persecutor of the church who in an instant was flipped around and was a passionate preacher of the church, a preacher of the gospel. And was doing so with such passion that the people in Damascus who were previously sympathetic with him wanted to kill him. But the brothers and sisters let him out and lowered him down by a basket. He learned very on that he was going to suffer for the name of Jesus. He switches gears a little bit here in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. 
Remember, I'm doing this to try to reach you, although I know that there is no good boasting in me. But I'm going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but, not, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though I've, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul begins to talk about this man who had an amazing supernatural vision. And as you read the text, and as I read commentators, it became clear that the the normal understanding of this passage is that Paul is talking about himself. Now, why would he be talking about himself in the third person? I I don't know why he would do that. But in verse 1, he said, I must go on boasting. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. In verse 7, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Paul is talking about himself. He had an out-of-body experience. He had a supernatural experience. And so we instinctively want to know what happened. What was going on? We have no idea. Here's what we know. He was taken up to the third heaven. He was in paradise. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. You see, Paul didn't want us to get caught up And what these things were, they were for him to see, for him to know, for him to understand. But the reason he is telling us about these visions is because he's going against these Corinthian accusers. You see, what these Corinthian accusers are doing are saying, look at me, I look good, I look great, I am doing these things well, look at my ministry, look at my influence, come follow me. Paul is saying, look, I had an experience that was phenomenal. It was supernatural. I had these revelations of things that, that, that I cannot even utter. And the, and the reality of that is when we see God work mightily, when we see God moving toward direction and using us and going through us, there is a tendency in us to say, man, look at me. And God is really moving in this direction. Things are really picking up at work. Things are really going well in my family. I'm really doing a good job. And we tend to take the glory for ourselves. And so God had a plan for Paul in verse 7. He said, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the, the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see, that's the struggle, to become conceited, to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh, and a messenger from Satan was allowed to torment him and mess with him. It brings to mind Job. What is the thorn in the flesh? Well, again, we're not told what the thorn in the flesh is. There's several different streams that people, people have thought through over the years. The two major ones were one, that it was the sufferings that we've read about in chapters 11. That all these things that he has suffered are this thorn in the flesh. 
And that word thorn is also, is also uh, uh, the word stake. It's not something that is light. It is not just a mere annoyance. It is something that is bothering Paul. But in the thing that is bothering Paul the most is that he is scared that it is going to overtake his ministry, that it's going to keep him from what he is supposed to be doing. The other, thorn, the other idea for the thorn in the flesh is that it's an, an ailment with his eye. He says in the book of Galatians that because of a bodily, bodily ailment that I came and I preached among you. We see in some of his letters that he had someone else write it. It might have been because he had trouble seeing the paper and had trouble writing because of that. And in fact, in some letters, that's why he makes a really big deal of, I wrote this with my own hand. But we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. Because the reality is the thorn in the flesh is kind of irrelevant of what it actually was. What we know is it was given to him to keep him humble. And so Paul did what we would do in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You see, this is where we can find ourselves. We can find ourselves in a place where we are weak where we do not feel like we have what it takes to go on. It could be a bodily ailment that has been plaguing us for months or for weeks or for years. It could be a relationship such with our parents or with our kids or with our spouse. It could be in a relationship in our workplace. It could be something about our job. We have sufferings and weakness, things that are getting us down. And we don't like pain. And we don't like discomfort. And when pain and discomfort come, what we do is we cry out to God and say, take this away from me. I cannot bear it any longer. I cannot stand under this anymore. It has got to go so I can do the things that you have called me to do. I need to do my ministry. I need to do my job. I need to take care of my family. And I can't do those things with this thorn in the flesh. So in the next two verses, Paul is going to give us a way to respond to suffering and weakness. Because every believer is going to have to respond to it. Sitting here in this room, you have gone through it. Many of you are going through it now, and all of us will go through it in the future. How will we respond? And I believe Paul's approach is as easy as ABC. Wanted to make it so you can remember it. The first is that we need to acknowledge reality. We need to acknowledge reality. Last week we talked about living in reality, understanding what is going on so that when accusations come, when we are questioned, when we are criticized, we are able to respond from that place of truth and we can respond with meekness and gentleness because of that. Well, when it comes to the area of weakness and of suffering, we need to be able to acknowledge what reality is. You see, what we don't usually like to acknowledge is that we're weak. We're Americans. We don't like to talk about weakness, about the things we don't have, about the things we can't do. But here's the reality. God created you and put you into a world that you don't have what it takes. You don't have everything you need to lead in your workplace. You don't have everything you need to lead in your home. You don't have everything you need to lead in the church. You don't have everything you need to to, uh, be fruitful in these relationships. There are things you need outside of you. You need help. You need help from other believers and other people around you. You need help from God. 
The reality is, is that we are going to go through times of suffering. When we have times of suffering, so often we're going to say, it's not fair. It is not fair that I am experiencing miscarriage. It is not fair that I am experiencing this physical ailment, that I am constantly sick, that I am constantly getting fired from my job. These things aren't fair. And here's what Paul says in verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Because I understand who I am. I understand who I am in Christ. And there are areas where I am weak. And when we come to a place where we can understand that there are areas where we are weak, that there are areas that we are going to suffer, we get to kick in the bee. We get to believe that Jesus is strong enough. We get to believe that he is strong enough, that he is all we need. He says to Paul in verse 9, and you've got to remember, this is the only time in Paul's writings that the resurrected Christ is speaking to him. In the actual words, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, at the end of verse 10, then I am strong. You see, God didn't set it up where you are strong enough to handle all the things that are going to come at you in life. He set it up that you are weak enough that you are going to need to rely on him. Because when you rely on him, he gets the glory. He gets the credit. He is shown to be the great and majestic God that he is. And we know that he is strong enough. Listen to his words. My grace, my undeserved favor is sufficient for you. It is enough for you. It is all you need. My power is made perfect in weakness. I get to show off how great I am when you are at your most weak and vulnerable. When you are at your moment of greatest need, it's where I show up in all my glory and get to demonstrate to you just how great I am. We have to get to a point where we truly believe that Jesus is all we need. We strip away all the things, all the comforts around us, You see, we like to believe that if we could just attain this position, if we can just get here and do this and bring all these things in, that then we're going to be happy. And the reality is, is if you're not happy with you and Jesus, if that is not enough where you are right now, it's never going to be enough. We must believe that he is strong enough. And then the last part is this. And the last part's the hardest one to do. Because I would like to tell you, I'd like to stand up here and say that when you do this last thing, when you acknowledge reality, when you believe that Jesus is stronger, all the other things are going to fade away. They're going to go away. It's going to be easy. It's going to be smooth sailing. But it's not true. Paul says here in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We must choose to be content. 
There might be times where you cry for that thorn in the flesh to be taken away. Jesus is strong enough to take away and praise the Lord when he does, but when he does not, when there is something in your life that is meant to keep you humble, when there is something in your life that is meant to demonstrate his greatness, we must choose to be content during that time, even when it's hard. But there's a reason I believe that we can do this. I have a statement that I'm going to put up here on the screen in in just a second. Um, It's a statement I don't have to look at any screen to look at, and I don't even have to look at notes to write it down because it has been burned into my brain. And I had a professor at seminary who would say this over and over again. And he so burned it into my brain, it has become a mantra that I have in life. And it is this. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in a future. You see, you're going to come to those times where you are weak and you're going to come to those times when you're suffering and you're going to come to a a crux and you're going to go, I don't, do I believe that Jesus is strong enough? Do I believe that he is all I need? How can I choose to be content? And the way that you do that is by understanding that what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. So you look at the story of Scripture. You look at Moses. And Moses led the people out of Egypt. And he led them all the way to the Red Sea. And when they got to the Red Sea, they saw the sea in front of them. And they saw on the sides, they saw desert and mountain and sure death out there because they had no food and no way to take care of themselves. And they looked back and they had the Egyptians coming behind them. They were guaranteed one thing, death. If you want to add a second thing, slavery. And yet when his people were the most vulnerable, when his people were the most weak, or his people were on the brink of even more suffering, probably greater suffering, he reached down and Moses reached up and he stuck his staff in the sand and all of God's people walked across dry land. You see, your God is sufficient for you for his power is made perfect in weakness. And then you have the story of Esther And Esther, while she was the queen of Persia, she lived in a time where women didn't have all that many rights. In fact, she just couldn't go up to her husband whenever she wanted. She had to be summoned to him. But she found herself at a place where her people were suffering and they were weak and they were going to be exterminated. And she had to step up and do something. And so she prayed and she had her people pray and fast. And she went before the king who could have killed her at the sight. But he extended his scepter and invited her in. And Esther was able, through the power of God, to save her people. Because when she was at her most weak and her most vulnerable, God stepped in with his power, which is made perfect in weakness. You have the story of Hezekiah in the book of Kings and Chronicles. And Hezekiah is looking out at the army of Sennacherib, one of the most ruthless rulers that we have recorded in history. And they have surrounded the city and they're not letting supplies in. They're not going to get food. They're not going to get water. They're not going to have a way to survive. And they're trying to choke the people out so they can go in, invade, and sack the city. Hezekiah Hezekiah gets on his knees and begins to pray. 
And the God who is at his strongest when we are at his weakness sent a warrior angel and wiped out the army of Sennacherib and saved the day. Because when his people are at their weakest, he displays his strength. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. This is what I can guarantee you as you leave here tonight. I can guarantee you that in the coming days and months and years that you will again experience weakness. Areas where you don't feel like you measure up, you don't feel like you have what it takes to get it done. I guarantee you that you will go through suffering. Suffering has all different sorts of heads that rear, but we understand what it means. That will happen. But here's the other thing I can promise you. Your God has power. Your God has grace that is sufficient for you. It is made perfect in times of weakness. Believe that he is strong enough and choose to be content, come what may. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in no way do we want to belittle suffering or do we want to be trite about weakness. Father, we experience pain and we experience hardship and we experience calamities and we go through things that sometimes we wish we wouldn't survive. But Father, what we want is to be able to say, your will be done. We want to be obedient to you. We want to follow you. And the way to do that is to believe that Jesus is strong enough, that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Father, may we choose to believe that, and we may be choose to be content with whatever you may bring us, so that we might continue in our mission with you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.